Chapter Eleven of Run to Earth, a novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Eleven: The Will, the Testament, Part One. The brief pang of fear and remorse passed quickly away, and Reginald went out upon the terrace to look upon those woods which were once more his promised heritage on which he could gaze as of old with the proud sense of possession while looking over that fair domain he forgot the hateful means by which he had re-established himself as the heir of raynham he forgot victor carrington everything except his own good fortune his heart throbbed with a sense of triumph he left the terrace crossed the italian garden and made his way to the light iron gate which opened upon the park leaning wearily upon this gate he saw an old man in the costume of a peddler a broad slouched hat almost concealed his face and a long iron-gray beard drooped upon his chest his garments were dusty as if with many a weary miles wandering on the parched high roads and he carried a large pack of goods upon his back the park was open to the public and this man had no doubt come to the garden gate in the hope of finding some servant who would be beguiled into letting him carry his wares to the castle for the inspection of sir oswald's numerous household stand aside my good fellow and let me pass said reginald as he approached the little gate the man did not stir his arms were folded on the topmost bar of the gate and he did not alter his attitude let me be the first to congratulate the heir of Raynham on his renewed hopes, he said quietly. Carrington, cried Reginald, and then, after a pause, he asked, What in heaven's name is the meaning of this masquerade? The surgeon removed his broad-brimmed hat and wiped his forehead with a hand that looked brown, wizen and wrinkled as the hand of an old man. Nothing could have been more perfect than his disguise. The accustomed pallor of his face was changed to the brown and sunburnt hue produced by constant exposure to all kinds of weather. A network of wrinkles surrounded the brilliant black eyes, which now shone under shaggy eyebrows of iron gray. "'I should never have recognized you,' said Reginald, staring for some moments at his friend's face, completely lost in surprise. "'Very likely not,' answered the surgeon coolly. "'I don't want people to recognize me. "'A disguise that can by any possibility be penetrated "'is the most fatal mistake. "'I can disguise my voice as well as my face, "'as you will perhaps hear by and by. "'When talking to a friend, "'there is no occasion to take so much trouble. "'But why have you assumed this disguise?' "'Because I want to be on the spot.' and you may imagine that, after having eloped with the lady of the house, I could not very safely show myself here in my own proper person. What need had you to return? Your scheme is accomplished, is it not? Well, not quite. Is there anything more to be done? Yes, there is something more. What is the nature of that something? asked Reginald. Leave that to me, answered the surgeon. And now, you had better pass on, young heir of Raynham, and leave the poor old peddler to smoke his pipe and to watch for some passing maid-servant who will admit him to the castle. 
Reginald lingered, fascinated in some manner, by the presence of his friend and counsellor. He wanted to penetrate the mystery hidden in the breast of his ally. "'How did you know that your scheme had succeeded?' he asked presently. "'I read my success in your face as you came towards this gate just now. It was the face of an acknowledged heir, and now perhaps you will be good enough to tell me your news.' Reginald related all that had happened the use he had made of Lydia Graham's malice, the interview with his uncle after Lady Eversleigh's return. "'Good!' exclaimed Victor. "'Good, from first to last. Did ever any scheme work so smoothly? That was a stroke of genius of yours, Reginald, the use you made of Miss Graham's evidence. And so she was watching us, was she? Charming creature! How little she knows to what an extent we are indebted to her!' "'Well, Reginald, I congratulate you. "'It is a grand thing to be the acknowledged heir of such an estate as this.' "'He glanced across the broad gardens, "'blazing with rich masses of vivid colour "'produced by the artistic arrangement of the flower-beds. "'He looked up to the long range of windows, "'the terrace, the massive towers, the grand old archway, "'and then he looked back at his friend "'with a sinister light in his glittering black eyes.' "'There is only one drawback,' he said. "'And that is?' "'That you may have to wait a very long time for your inheritance. "'Let me see. "'Your uncle is fifty years of age, I think?' "'Yes. "'He is about fifty. "'And he has an iron constitution. "'He has led a temperate hardy life. "'Such a man is as likely to live to be eighty "'as I am to see my fortieth birthday. "'And that would give you thirty years waiting.' a long delay, a terrible trial of patience. "'Why do you say these things?' cried Reginald impatiently. "'Do you want to make me miserable in the hour of our triumph? "'Do you mean that we have burdened our souls with all this crime and falsehood for nothing? "'You are mad, Victor.' "'No, I am only in a speculative mood. Thirty years, thirty years would be a long time to wait.' "'Who says I shall have to wait thirty years? "'My uncle may die long before that time.' "'Ah, to be sure. "'Your uncle may die suddenly. "'Perhaps very soon it may be. "'The shock of his wife's falsehood may kill him "'after he has made a new will in your favour. "'The two men stood face to face, looking at each other. "'What do you mean?' Reginald asked. "'And why do you look at me like that?' I am only thinking what a lucky fellow you would be if this grief that has fallen upon your uncle were to be fatal to his life. Don't talk like that, Carrington. I won't think of such a thing. I am bad enough, I know, but not quite so bad as to wish my uncle dead. You would be sorry if he were dead, I suppose? Sorry, with this domain your own, with all power and pleasure that wealth can purchase for a man? You would be sorry, would you? You wish well to the kind kinsman to whom you have been such a devoted nephew. You would prefer to wait thirty years for your heritage, if you should live so long. Victor Carrington, cried Reginald passionately, you are the fiend himself in disguise. Let me pass. I will not stop to listen to your hateful words. Wait to hear one question at any rate. Why do you suppose I made you sign that promissory note at a twelve-month's date? I don't know. "'But you must know, as well as I do, 
that the note will be waste paper so long as my uncle lives. I do know that, my dear Reginald, but I got you to date the document as you did, because I have a kind of presentiment that before that date you will be master of Raynham. You mean that my uncle will die within the year? I am subject to presentiments of that kind. I do not think Sir Oswald will see the end of the year. Carrington, exclaimed Reginald, your schemes are hateful. I will have no further dealings with you. Indeed. Then am I to go to Sir Oswald and tell him the story of last night? Am I to tell him that his wife is innocent? No, no, tell him nothing. Let things stand as they are. The promise of the estate is mine. I have suffered too much from the loss of my position, and I cannot forego my new hopes. But let there be no more guilt, no more plotting. We have succeeded. Let us wait patiently for the end. Yes, answered the surgeon coolly, we will wait for the end. And if the end should come sooner than our most sanguine hopes have led us to expect, we will not quarrel with the handiwork of fate. Now leave me. I see a petticoat yonder amongst the trees. It belongs to some housemaid from the castle, I dare say, and I must see if my eloquence as a wandering merchant cannot win me admission within the walls which I dare not approach as Victor Carrington. Reginald opened the gate with his pass-key, and allowed the surgeon to go through into the gardens. It was dusk when Sir Oswald left the library. He had sent a message to the chief of his guests, excusing himself from attending the dinner-table on the ground of ill-health. When he knew that all his visitors would be assembled in the dining-room, he left the library for the first time since he had entered it after breakfast. He had brooded long and gloomily over his misery, and had come to a determination as to the line of conduct which he should pursue towards his wife. He went now to Lady Eversleigh's apartments, in order to inform her of his decision. But to his surprise he found the rooms empty. His wife's maid was sitting at needlework by one of the windows of the dressing-room. "'Where is your mistress?' asked Sir Oswald. "'She has gone out, sir.' She has left the castle for some little time, I think, sir, for she put on the plainest of her travelling dresses, and she took a small travelling bag with her. There is a note, sir, on the mantelpiece in the next room. Shall I fetch it? No, I will get it myself. At what time did Lady Eversleigh leave the castle? About two hours ago, sir. Two hours? In time for the afternoon coach to York, thought Sir Oswald. "'Go and inquire if your mistress really left the castle at that time,' he said to the maid. He went into the boudoir, and took the letter from the mantelpiece. He crushed it into his breast pocket, with the seal unbroken. "'Time enough to discover what new falsehood she has tried to palm upon me,' he thought. He looked round the empty room, which she was never more to occupy. Her books, her music, were scattered on every side.' The sound of her rich voice seemed still to vibrate through the room, and she was gone, forever. Well, she was a base and guilty creature, and it was better so, infinitely better, that her polluting presence should no longer dishonor those ancient chambers, within which generations of proud and pure women had lived and died. But to see the rooms empty, and to know that she was gone, gave him nevertheless a pang. 
"'What will become of her?' thought Sir Oswald. "'She will return to her lover, of course, "'and he will console her for the sacrifice she has made by her mad folly. "'Let her prize him while he still lives to console her, "'for she may not have him long. "'Why do I think of her? "'Why do I trouble myself about her? "'I have my affairs to arrange, a new will to make, "'before I think of vengeance. "'And those matters, once settled, "'vengeance shall be my only thought. "'I have done for ever with love.' "'Sir Oswald returned to the library. "'A lamp burned on the table at which he was accustomed to write. "'It was a shaded reading-lamp, "'which made a wide circle of vivid light around the spot where it stood, "'but left the rest of the room in shadow. "'The night was oppressively hot.' an August rather than a September night, and before beginning his work, Sir Oswald flung open one of the broad windows leading out upon the terrace. Then he unlocked a carved oak bureau and took out a packet of papers. He seated himself at the table and began to examine these papers. Among them was the will which he had executed since his marriage. He read this and then laid it aside, as he did so a figure approached the wide-open window an eager face illuminated by glittering eyes peered into the room it was the face of victor carrington hidden beneath the disguise of assumed age and completely metamorphosed by the dark skin and grizzled beard had sir oswald looked up and seen that face he would not have recognized its owner after laying aside the document he had read Sir Oswald began to write. He wrote slowly, meditating upon every word, and after having written for about half an hour, he rose and left the room. The surgeon had never stirred from his post by the window, and as Sir Oswald closed the door behind him, he crept stealthily into the apartment and to the table where the papers lay. His footstep, light always, made no sound upon the thick velvet pile, he glanced at the contents of the paper on which the ink was still wet it was a will leaving the bulk of sir oswald's fortune to his nephew reginald unconditionally victor carrington did not linger a moment longer than was necessary to convince him of this fact he hurried back to his post by the window nor was he an instant too soon the door opened before he had fairly stepped from the apartment sir oswald re-entered followed by two men one was the butler the other was the valet joseph millard the will was executed in the presence of these men who affixed their signatures to it as witnesses i have no wish to keep the nature of this will a secret from my household said sir oswald it restores my nephew mr reginald eversleigh to his position as heir to this estate you will henceforth respect him as my successor the two men bowed and retired. Sir Oswald walked towards the window, and Victor Carrington drew back into the shadow cast by a massive abutment of stonework. It was not very easy for a man to conceal himself on the terrace in that broad moonlight. Voices sounded presently near one of the windows, and a group of ladies and gentlemen emerged from the drawing-room. "'It is the hottest night we have had this summer,' said one of them. The house is really oppressive. Miss Graham had enchanted her viscount once more, and she and that gentleman walked side by side on the terrace. They will discover me if they come this way, 
muttered victor as he shrank back into the shadow i have seen all that i want to see for the present and had better make my escape while i am safe he stole quietly along by the front of the castle lurking always in the shadow of the masonry and descended the terrace steps from thence he went to the courtyard on which the servants hall opened and in a few minutes he was comfortably seated in that apartment listening to the gossip of the servants who could only speak upon the one subject of lady eversleigh's elopement the baronet sat with the newly made will before him gazing at the open leaves with fixed and dreamy eyes now that the document was signed a feeling of doubt had taken possession of him he remembered how deliberately he had pondered over the step before he had disinherited his nephew and now that work which had cost him so much pain and thought had been undone on the impulse of a moment have i done right i wonder he asked himself the papers which had been tied in the packet containing the old will had been scattered on the table when the baronet unfastened the band that secured them he took one of these documents up in sheer absence of mind and opened it it was the letter written by the wretched girl who drowned herself in the seine the letter of reginald eversleigh's victim the very letter on the evidence of which sir oswald had decided that his nephew was no fitting heir to a great fortune the baronet's brow contracted as he read and it is to the man who could abandon a wretched woman to despair and death that i am about to leave wealth and power he exclaimed no the decision which i arrived at in arlington street was a just and wise decision i have been mad to-day maddened by anger and despair but it is not too late to repent my folly the seducer of mary goodwin shall never be the master of raynham castle sir oswald folded the sheet of foolscap on which the will was written and held it over the flame of the lamp he carried it over to the fireplace and threw it blazing on the empty hearth he watched it thoughtfully until the greater part of the paper was consumed by the flame and then went back to his seat my nephews lionel and douglas dale shall divide the estate between them he thought i will send for my solicitor to-morrow and make a new will victor carrington sat in the servants hall at raynham until past eleven o'clock he had made himself quite at home with the domestics in his assumed character the women were delighted with the showy goods which he carried in his pack and which he sold them at prices far below those of the best bargains they had ever made before at a few minutes after eleven he rose to bid them good night i suppose i shall find the gates open he said yes the gates of the courtyard are never locked till half-past eleven answered a sturdy old coachman the peddler took his leave but he did not go out by the courtyard he went straight to the terrace along which he crept with stealthy footsteps many lights twinkled in the upper windows of the terrace front for at this hour the greater number of sir oswald's guests had retired to their rooms the broad window of the library was still open but a curtain had been drawn before it on one side of which there remained a crevice through this crevice victor carrington could watch the interior of the chamber with very little risk of being discovered the baronet was still sitting by the writing-table with the light of the library lamp shining full upon him an open letter was in his hand 
it was the letter his wife had left for him it was not like the letter of a guilty woman it was quiet subdued full of sadness and resignation rather than of passionate despair i know now that i ought never to have married you oswald wrote lady eversleigh the sacrifice which you made for my sake was too great a one no happiness could well come of such an unequal bargain you gave me everything and i could give you so little the cloud upon my past life was black and impenetrable you took me nameless friendless unknown and i can scarcely wonder if at the first breath of suspicion your faith wavered and your love failed farewell dearest and best of men you never can know how truly i have loved you how i have reverenced your noble nature in all that has come to pass between us since the first hour of our miserable estrangement nothing has grieved me so deeply as to see your generous soul overclouded by suspicions and doubts as unworthy of you as they are needless and unfounded farewell i go back to the obscurity from whence you took me you need not fear for my future the musical education which i owe to your generous help will enable me to live and i have no wish to live otherwise than humbly may heaven bless you honoria this was all there were no complaints no entreaties the letter seemed instinct with the dignity of truth and she has gone forth alone unprotected she has gone back to her lonely and desolate life thought the baronet inclined for a moment at least to believe in his wife's words but in the next instant he remembered the evidence of lydia graham the wild and improbable story by which honoria had tried to account for her absence no no he exclaimed it is all treachery from first to last she is hiding herself somewhere near at hand no doubt to wait the result of this artful letter and when she finds that her artifices are thrown away when she discovers that my heart has been changed to adamant by her infamy she will go back to her lover if he still lives to shelter her a hundred conflicting ideas confused sir oswald's brain but one thought was paramount and that was the thought of revenge he resolved to send for his lawyer early the next morning to make a new will in favour of his sister's two sons and then to start in search of the man who had robbed him of his wife's affection reginald would of course be able to assist him in finding victor carrington while sir oswald mused thus the man of whom he was thinking watched him through the narrow space between the curtains shall it be to-night thought carrington it cannot be too soon he might change his mind about his will at any moment and if it should happen to-night people will say the shock of his wife's flight has killed him sir oswald's folded arms rested on the table his head sank forward on his arms the passionate emotions of the day the previous night of agony had at last exhausted him he fell into a doze a feverish troubled sleep carrington watched him for upwards of a quarter of an hour as he slept thus i think he is safe now and i may venture murmured victor at the end of that time he crept softly into the room making a wide circle and keeping himself completely in the shadow till he was behind the sleeping baronet then he came towards the lamp-lit table 
amongst the scattered letters and papers there stood a claret jug a large carafe of water and an empty glass victor drew close to the table and listened for some moments to the breathing of the sleeper then he took a small bottle from his pocket and dropped a few globules of some colourless liquid into the empty glass having done this he withdrew from the apartment as silently as he had entered it twelve o'clock struck as he was leaving the terrace so he muttered it is little more than three-quarters of an hour since i left the servants hall it would not be difficult to prove an alibi with the help of a blundering village innkeeper he did not attempt to leave the castle by the courtyard which he knew would be locked by this time he had made himself acquainted with all the ins and outs of the place and had possessed himself of a key belonging to one of the garden gates through this gate he passed out into the park climbed a low fence and made his way into Raynham village where the landlord of the hen and chickens was just closing his doors i have been told by the castle servants that you can give me a bed he said the landlord who was always delighted to oblige his patrons in sir oswald's servants hall and stables declared himself ready to give the traveller the best accommodation his house could afford it is late sir he said but we'll manage to make things comfortable for you so that night the surgeon slept in the village of Raynham. He too was worn out by the fatigue of the past twenty-four hours, and he slept soundly all through the night, and slept as calmly as a child. It was eight o'clock next morning when he went down the steep, old-fashioned staircase of the inn. He found a strange hubbub and confusion below. Awful tidings had just been brought from the castle. Sir Oswald Eversleigh had been found seated in his library, dead, with the lamp still burning near him in the bright summer morning one of the grooms had come down to the little inn and was telling his story to all comers when the peddler came into the open space before the bar it was millard that found him the man said he was sitting quite calm-like with his head lying back upon the cushion of his armchair there were papers and open letters scattered all about and they sent off immediately for mr dalton the lawyer to look to the papers and seal up the locks of drawers and desks and so on. Mr. Dalton is busy at it now. Mr. Eversleigh is awfully shocked he is. I never saw such a white face in all my life as his when he came out into the hall after hearing the news. It's a rare fine thing for him, as you may say, for they say Sir Oswald made a new will last night, and left his nephew everything, and Mr. Eversleigh has been a regular wild one, and is deep in debt. But for all that, I never saw anyone so cut up as he was just now. Poor Sir Oswald, cried the bystanders. Such a noble gentleman as he was, too. What did he die of, Mr. Kimber? Do you know? The doctor says it must have been heart disease, answered the groom. A broken heart, I say. That's the only disease Sir Oswald had. It's my lady's conduct has killed him. She must have been a regular bad one, mustn't she? The story of the elopement had been fully discussed on the previous day at the Hen and Chickens, and everywhere else in the village of Raynham. The country gossips shook their heads over Lady Eversleigh's iniquity, but they said little. This new event was of so appalling a nature that it silenced even the tongue of gossip for a while. The peddler took his breakfast in the little parlour behind the bar, and listened quietly to all that was said by the villagers and the groom. "'And where is my lady?' asked the innkeeper. 
She came back yesterday, didn't she? Yes, and went away again yesterday afternoon, returned the groom. She's got enough to answer for, she has. End of chapter 11, part 1